Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 72. Last week, I continued working my way through Exodus. In that episode, covering Rephidim, Massa, Meribah, and the Amalekites. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm covering what's in the Old Testament, along with the outside record concerning Mount Sinai. And Exodus is perhaps best known as the location where God bestowed the Ten Commandments on Moses. In this same part of Exodus, we're introduced to the concept of biblical judges. I'm going to take a little time this week to cover the concept, too. The actual history of the known judges will be reserved for a future episode. But before that time period, we have to deal with how they got there. And with that, let's get started. When I left off last week, we were in Exodus chapter 17. In that chapter, the Israelites complained to Moses about being thirsty. He consults with God and is able to draw water from a rock. Then, the Amalekites attack. Moses picks the young Joshua to go out and fight the enemy. From a mountainside, Moses holds his staff up, and the Israelites start winning. Then his arms tire, so he drops them, and the tide turns, and the Israelites begin to lose. He's given a rock to sit on, while Aaron and Hur hold up his arms, and with that, the Israelites defeat the Amalekites. Which gets me to chapter 18. Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, a Midian priest and Kenite shepherd, comes for a visit. He brings Moses' wife, Zipporah, along with Moses' sons, Gershom and Eliezer, quite the family reunion. Of course, Moses tells Jethro of all that has happened to the Israelites, and not unexpectedly, Jethro is amazed. So amazed that he gives up his Midian religion and joins the Hebrews in worshiping the one God, Yahweh. The exact quote is, Blessed be the Lord, who has delivered you from the Egyptians and from Pharaoh. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because he delivered the people from the Egyptians when they dealt arrogantly with them. End quote. They catch up over a meal, presumably quail and manna, maybe livestock, a fattened calf, perhaps. And then they worship together. Later, we find out a bit more about how Moses spends his days, when he's not the subject of seemingly never-ending complaints. The actual text is important, as it sets the stage for how Israel would proceed after Moses' death. From the New Revised Standard Version. The next day, Moses sat as judge for the people, while the people stood around him from morning until evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone while all the people stand around you from morning until evening? Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God, when they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another, and I make known to them the statutes and instructions of God. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You will surely wear yourself out, both you and these people with you. End quote. 
Then Jethro tells Moses to teach the laws to a select group of people so that they may sit in judgment. Essentially, delegate the task. Remember that, you first-time managers. Jethro gives Moses a bit more guidance, saying, You should also look for able men among all the people, men who fear God, are trustworthy, and hate dishonest gain. Set such men over them as officers over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Let them sit as judges for the people at all times. Let them bring every important case to you, but decide every minor case themselves. Pausing a second. So develop a hierarchy, with Moses acting as a superior court judge, while his delegates acted as small claims and magistrate court judges unpausing and skipping ahead a bit. So Moses listened to his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men from all Israel and appointed them as heads over the people, as officers over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens, and they judged the people at all times. Hard cases they brought to Moses, but any minor cases they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went off to his own country, end quote. And with this, we see the establishment of the judges, which gets me to the next topic. This is the first mention of the role of judge in the Bible, and other mentions would be rather spartan until much later in the Old Testament. Then, of course, the book of Judges recounts the pre-king history of the confederated tribes. I'll save that period of history for later, and for now cover what is known about the role of these people. Of course, as is seen when they are first introduced, these select men, and later a woman, would settle disputes between the people. They would later also serve as military leaders during crises that required military intervention. The word judge is the literal translation of the Hebrew word, of which pronunciation I'll spare you. But it's not quite what we think of as a judge. As Exodus clearly demonstrates, Moses appointed the first batch, and the position was not passed on via heredity. But Cyrus H. Gordon, a 20th century American professor of both ancient languages and cultures, wrote that the judges may have been sourced from the hereditary leaders of the fighting, landed, and ruling aristocracy. And this would have been similar to what was seen in other nearby contemporary cultures. Another historian from the 20th century, Israel Abraham Malamot, described their authority as extending beyond their home tribe. Later, but not much later, British biblical historian Kenneth Kitchen wrote that after the conquest of Canaan by Joshua, until the formation of the first kingdom of Israel, the Israelite tribes may have formed a loose confederation. With this, no central government would have existed, but in times of crisis, the people would have been led by chieftains who were known as judges. In this period, not the one in Exodus, but from the conquest of Canaan to the unification under Saul, is proposed to have been between about 1382 and 1063 BC, so just over 300 years. And that's it for the role of the Israelite judges, for now.
Which gets me to chapter 19. In the first verse, we're told that on the third new moon, after the Israelites had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. So, exactly three months, at least by the lunar calendar. Then God addresses Moses on Mount Sinai. There's a bit more to the story, such as all of the detail of what Moses told the people and how he eventually brought Aaron up the mountain. If you're interested, you know where to find it. And that gets me to my next topic, Mount Sinai. Of course, this is best known as the place where the Ten Commandments were given to the people. But Deuteronomy chapter 5 says this occurred at Horeb. So, no surprise, Mount Sinai and Horeb are assumed to be the same place. And, like I mentioned in an earlier episode, the word Sinai may be a local cultural reference to the moon, while Horeb may be a reference to the sun. In Exodus, Sinai was covered by a cloud, the earth shook, and the area, perhaps the mountain, maybe more, was filled with smoke. There was lightning and thunder along with trumpet blasts and fire at the summit. All of these natural phenomena heralding the arrival of God to the site and obscuring him from the view of the Israelites. Moses would journey up to the summit and stay there for 40 days and nights. So, where is this mountain? There are a few clues in the text. In 1 Kings chapter 19, the prophet Elijah is said to have escaped the wrath of Jezebel by running away to Horeb. According to that text, it was the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night, end quote. So, at least to Elijah, it was not only a specific place, but also a place that was still known as the place where God and Moses had met. But after that, there are no specific references in the Old Testament text. So, the plausible explanation is that the location was lost. Next, there is the 1st century AD Jewish-Roman historian Josephus, who wrote that Sinai was between Egypt and Arabia, and within Arab Patria. Arab Patria was a Roman province that included what is today Jordan, the southern part of Syria, the Sinai Peninsula, and northwestern Saudi Arabia. Its capital was in the photogenic ruined city of Petra. Think Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. More on Petra towards the end of this episode. Tying the two together, Josephus lived about 1,000 years after Elijah. If the location was forgotten, it was likely in that millennia. In between the prophet and the historian were Saul Turnpaul's letters, and he was just as vague, writing in Galatians in chapter 4 that Mount Sinai is in Arabia. Actually, that's even less specific than Josephus, as it could have been anywhere on the peninsula the large Arabian Peninsula. Circling back to Josephus, who wrote that, quoting, Moses went up to a mountain that lay between Egypt and Arabia, which was called Sinai. Josephus also opined that Sinai is the highest of all the mountains thereabout, and is the highest of all the mountains that are in that country, and is not only very difficult to be ascended by men, 
on account of its vast altitude, but because of the sharpness of its precipices, which seems oddly specific. Charles Beakey, a 19th century British historian, thought that Sinai was likely a volcano. The Sinai Peninsula doesn't have any volcanoes, but a short distance away on the Arabian Peninsula is Hala Badur, probably better known in the West as Mount Badur. There's no evidence of an erupting volcano in the region around the time of the Exodus, but that doesn't mean it didn't happen, as the region was sparsely populated. There is a bit of evidence that a volcano in the region did erupt about 2,000 years later, around 640 AD. So, an earlier volcano certainly is plausible. Miki wasn't alone in the belief of a volcano as the biblical mountain. This view was also supported by none other than Sigmund Freud. I'm not certain if that adds or subtracts plausibility. Also in this volcano camp was Emanuel Velikovsky, a 20th century Jewish-Russian historian, along with several others. These volcano proponents put forth several candidate mountains in the region, each for varying reasons. The only one I'll note is Abal Anur. It's near the Islamic holy city of Mecca in Saudi Arabia. The mountain contains the cave of Hira, a cave where it said Muhammad spent a great deal of time meditating. In that religion, in the cave of this mountain, it's believed he received his first revelation. Do note that the mountain is rather short, especially when compared to the others in the region. It's only 2,100 feet or 640 meters above sea level. The Song of Deborah, though, counters the volcano theory with a different cause of the supernatural wonders found in the Exodus. A storm where the heavens poured and the clouds indeed poured water. Of course, there are other geographic references with similar or even the same names in the text. The Wilderness of Sin, Sinai, Wilderness of Zen with a Z, etc. So it's also likely that Mount Sinai wasn't a direct reference to the Mountain of the Moon, but just took on a name common in the area. It could also be a mountain of Sinai, not the Mount Sinai. Then, there is a Jewish rabbinic tradition that claims that the word Sinai is derived from the Hebrew word sina, which means hatred. They go on to claim this was because of the other nations hating the Hebrews out of jealousy, due to the Jews being the ones to receive the word of God. And this also helps to explain the word sin, as we traditionally see it, since God hates sin. And, as for the peninsula bearing the same name, that's a relatively recent occurrence I'll get to in a minute. While we're on classical rabbinic literature, it mentions the mountain having other names. Har Ha Elohim, which means the mountain of God. And that makes sense. Next is Har Bashan, which translates to the mountain of Bashan but could also translate to the place with the teeth. And that reference needs a bit of explanation. It could refer to man needing sustenance, or maybe, more generally, to the ruggedness of the terrain. There's also Har Gibanim, 
translating to the mountain as pure as goat cheese. And that's certainly a reference that gets lost in cultural translation. And of course, Har Horeb, Mount Horeb, the mountain also appears in the Quran, where it's called either the Mount of Sinai or the Mountain of Moses. What has come to be regarded as Mount Sinai is located on the Sinai Peninsula, and is actually the name of a group of mountain peaks, sometimes referred to as the Holy Mountain Peaks. Among these are Jabal Musa, Mount Catherine, and Rosh Susafa. Etheria, a 4th century AD pilgrim and writer, wrote that the whole mountain group looks as if it were a single peak, but as you enter the group, you see that there are more than one. End quote. The highest of these peaks is Mount Catherine, with an elevation of about 8,500 feet, or just over 2,600 meters. The next highest is Jabal Musa, about 1,000 feet, or 300 meters shorter. The pair of peaks, not quite twins, are by far the tallest in the Sinai Desert region, and pretty much the tallest in what used to be known as Midian. For comparison, there are mountains nearby in the Tea Desert, but these are some 4,000 feet or 1,400 meters shorter, about half the height when measured from sea level. And considering that the sea is not visible from their bases, they actually appear even shorter. 20 miles, so 30 kilometers away, is Jabal Serbel, but it only reaches 6,700 feet or just north of 2,000 meters. Christian pilgrims settled on the twin-peaked mountains in the 3rd century AD. Later, in the 5th century, Georgians, not the state, but the region in the Caucasus, moved to the Sinai Peninsula. About 400 years later, they would form a colony, to the extent that they built churches around the mountain we know as Sinai. Like I've briefly mentioned in the past, at the foot of the mountain now known as Sinai is St. Catherine's Monastery. It's maintained by Orthodox Greeks and is thought by some to be the oldest working Christian monastery in the world, having been established in 565 AD. Do note that the monastery of St. Anthony, across the Red Sea in the desert south of Cairo, makes the same claim. But before St. Catherine's, there was something else. In the 3rd century AD, an Egyptian pilgrim named Amenius of Alexandria, who had in past times made various visits to the area, identified Jabul Musa as the holy mountain. In the 4th century AD, small settlements of monks started to pop up in the area. Roman Empress Helena, mother to Constantine the Great, around 330 AD, built a church to protect the monks from raiding nomads. Legend has it that her picking the specific site was duly motivated. First, the Bedouins had considered it the right location, and second, this was confirmed in a dream she had. Although it is commonly known as St. Catherine's, the monastery's full official name is the Sacred Monastery of the God-Trotted Mount Sinai. The association with Catherine came after its establishment. According to some traditions, Catherine of Alexandria was a Christian martyr sentenced to death on the breaking wheel. When this failed to kill her, she was beheaded. 
According to the tradition, angels took her remains to Mount Sinai. Around the year 800, monks from the Sinai Monastery are said to have found these remains, hence the name. And the sacredness of the mountain is not limited to Judeo-Christian religions and cultures. Nomadic Bedouins consider the modernly known Sinai to be the biblical mountain. So, about the naming of this region. The Sinai Peninsula has traditionally been considered Mount Sinai's location by Christians, but the region gained its name from this tradition, not the other way around. To the indigenous, the Montanu, they called it Mafket, meaning the country of turquoise, which makes sense as the Egyptians are known to have mined the blue-green mineral there as early as about 3000 BC, perhaps earlier. But if you stick with the 3000 BC date, this predates the Exodus by about 1400 years, give or take. To even the early AD writer and historian Josephus, the region wasn't called Sinai. The earliest references to the peak being referred to as Sinai are a bit of a mystery. There is a small bit of evidence that prior to 100 AD, so obviously well before the Christian monastic period, Jewish sages equated the current mountain with Mount Sinai. Graham Davies, a 20th century British Old Testament professor, formerly of Cambridge University, wrote that early Jewish pilgrimages identified the peak as Mount Sinai, and this identification was later adopted by Christian pilgrims. Similar to the Bedouins, as early as the 3rd century BC, apparently Nabataeans were making pilgrimages there. They left behind inscriptions, at least in the general area. Finally, alternate sites for the biblical Sinai have been proposed. First, there is Edom sometimes referred to as Nabatea. This is based on the reunion of Moses and his father-in-law Jethro. And remember, Jethro was a Kenite who was also a Midianite priest. This reunion occurs in the narrative just before the Israelites make it to Mount Sinai. According to the theory, this suggests that the mountain would be somewhere near the Kenite-slash-Midianite territory, which is thought to have been in what is today Saudi Arabia, likely to the east of the Gulf of Aqaba, on the far northeast shore of the Red Sea, so east of the Sinai Peninsula. There's also a theory that places the mountain in Edom. The theory draws from the Song of Deborah, which some textual scholars consider one of the oldest parts of the Bible. The song depicts God as having dwelt at Mount Seir, and may suggest that this equates with Mount Sinai. Mount Seir is thought to be a mountain range in the center of Edom, and in Edom was the ancient city of Petra. Petra lies in a valley known as the Wadi Musa, translating to the Valley of Moses. Also, there is the An Musa, the Spring of Moses. According to the 13th century Arab writer Numari, this is where Moses got the water from the rock. Into the mountain at Petra were carved many buildings, including the famed treasury. But that's not the topic for today. At the top of the mountain used to be many altars. Also, the top of the mountain was removed to leave a flat surface. 
part of which at one time was covered by blue slate. Only fragments of this, the slate, the altars, everything on top of the mountain remain today, not enough to be conclusive of anything. Petra is also associated with the Negev region, so naturally that area has been proposed as another potential site for the mountain and region that share the name Sinai. This theory relies on the thought that the Israelites journeyed in a somewhat straight line from Egypt towards Petra. About halfway between the two, in the Negev desert, is an archaeological site known as Har Karkum. On this plateau were uncovered shrines, altars, stone circles, stone pillars, and over 40,000 rock engravings. But it appears to date to about 1,000 years before the estimated date of the Exodus, so likely no joy. The artifacts are therefore more likely of the Midianites, the Amalekites, and other ancient peoples' origin. Back at the mountain modernly thought to be Sinai, on the summit is a mosque that is still in use. On the same peak is a Greek Orthodox chapel constructed in 1934 at the same site as a 16th century church. Inside the chapel is a rock which is considered to be the source for the Ten Commandments. The chapel is not open to the public though. Also at the summit is a cave known as Moses' Cave where it's alleged Moses waited to receive the tablets from God, which is a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll keep moving forward in Exodus. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.